From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to it on this Monday morning. Hope you are having a great big blue one. Uh, nice wintry morning we are having in Johannesburg. And we've got a great show lined up for you, as we always do, bringing you the best and the brightest about what is going on in the world. Later on, we are going to be speaking, as we always do, to Rob Hutchinson, telling us about what is going on in Parliament, because that is uh, part of uh, what we need to know, because Parliament is legislating things, and we need to find out what they are doing. So we're going to be talking to him, and... We'll be seeing uh, what's going on there. But before that, I'm happy to say that we're going to be chatting to uh, Dr. Um, David Katz. And uh, he is a doctor of military history and uh, other kinds of history uh, and all sorts of things. And uh, we're going to be talking about Ukraine because Ukraine is kind of being a little bit uh, cold. I mean, I know it's always kind of cold, that part of the world. But it's it's going to heat up in a different way. We're looking at a counteroffensive we just had this big meeting at the G7 where Zelensky was, and we're going to be finding out what is it that we can be looking forward to, or not forward, but what is coming up and what we should be understanding about what's going on. And what is South Africa's role? Because we are trying to uh, see where we sit as a country, because we have been pulled into this uh, dilemma and all of these, all of these issues, and we, we need to find out what is going on. And you can be part of the conversation. You can SMS us, 34519. That is the SMS line. Or you can telegram us, 0618951019, because we want you to be part of the conversation, to be telling us about what is uh, going on in the world where it comes to, um, when it comes to, to, to Ukraine and, and South Africa and, and all of these these sorts of things. So I think it's going to be a really good discussion. And that's why I'm happy to say that we have with us in studio, which is very nice, David Katz. Doctor, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me here, Benji. Always a pleasure to come into studio. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's start off with, with the burning question, right? Because uh, I think no one knows, but we, we assume that you might know better than us. Uh, what do you think was on that ship that arrived in Simonstown in the middle of the night during load shedding, they allegedly seem to have kicked the Navy out of the base in order to, to load and unload things. And South Africa still hasn't given a, a, a cogent explanation about what has happened. And I'm just really interested in, do you have any ideas about what you think might have been on the ship? And also, just more generally, what do you think that this means? Well, look, I've got a, I think I've got a stronger idea of what was not on that ship. I'm, I'm almost certain um, – that uh, Russia has no use at this stage for anything we have to offer in the sort of conventional military equipment uh, type of thing. Uh, ammunition, we don't use the same ammunition as the Russians. They don't use the same as us. 
And I, I just don't feel they had any need for that. So something else must have been on that ship. And until a manifest emerges or some deithful, decent, truthful manifest emerges, what was on there, I think we're all going to be living in the dark. But I sincerely doubt that uh, it, 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 there was any conventional sort of type of armament destined for the Russian army. It might have been some other type of armament destined for some, some, for some other destination. Uh, but certainly I don't feel that the Russians have got any use for what we have to offer over here. Um, it's rather archaic to what they, what they are using now at the moment. Yeah, certainly it, it is, it is very interesting. The, the ship did go to, um, a, a base in Sudan, uh, on its way back to Russia and, and that's associated with this, this Wagner group that, that we hear about, a lot about. And maybe actually you could, let's talk about that because, uh, we, we hear, Quite often, when it comes to the Ukraine issue, something to do with with uh, Russia. But also, you hear Wagner uh, a lot, and maybe you can tell us from a military perspective what what is this group all about? What do, what do they do? Well, traditionally, Wagner was a was was a mercenary type organization headed up by a gentleman called, and I hope I pronounce his name correctly, Brogotsin. Is that is that more or less right? Yeah, uh, I mean, Yevgeny Brogotsin, by the way, who who may have uh, some Jewish heritage. I'm not oh, sure. Interesting. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was thrown around last week when, so when one of the Russians accused him of not being a proper Russian citizen. <laughs> uh, so there's a little bit of anti-Semitism there on the, on, on on the Russian front. So uh, Wagner has had a tradition of being in Africa and being involved in some of the some of the conflicts over here. Uh, the one that was on our doorstep was where the Wagner group was uh, involved in Mozambique, in northern Mozambique, trying to quell that uh, insurrection that was happening up there in the north with all the gas pipelines and that type of thing. They were singularly unsuccessful, by the way, in Mozambique. Uh, they got quite a hiding mm-hmm. and... Uh, I don't know if they achieve what they have to do, but you'll see they'll put their they'll they put their nose in on a lot of the African affairs, and they have been used extensively now in Ukraine around Bakhmut, uh, where they've shown some success at great expense apparently, uh, in, in in human cost and material, in in capturing eventually I think yesterday they managed to capture Bakhmut after a ten month period uh, of a siege, so not much to show for it, but uh, certainly they've been a very useful tool for for, for Putin in his war in Ukraine. And they seem to be somewhat more motivated than the normal Russian soldier. These are ex-convicts, uh, most of them now serving in Ukraine are ex-convicts that have been released from jail. They're desperados. They've been promised uh, a free get-out-of-jail-free card once they've served their term. If they survive, the survival rates are not the greatest. But uh, there's something for them to fight for. And, uh, yeah, they've been used to some extent uh, with limited success. Interesting. Okay, so that's that's what kind of a modern-day mercenary looks like, really. I mean, it's almost an arm of the Russian state in in, in some respects. They, they don't seem to work for any other country. It's just sort of the Russians have outsourced their uh, military prowess in some respect to, to this group to yeah, help un, under yes. key circumstances. Yes, and they're not, a, they're not a foreign legion either. I mean, yeah. It seems to be crewed by Russians, exclusively by Russians at this stage. Also, had, uh, they were deployed to Syria, I believe. I may be wrong on that. But yeah, they've been deployed all over the place, and uh, yeah, they have some they have some success. Professional army, people being paid for their services, nothing new. Uh, it's as old as the oldest profession in the world. So, yeah, along with some others, but we don't talk about those on no. the radio. Um, let's now talk about the theatre, right? We're now looking, if we if we look carefully, at really the biggest European armed conflict since World War II. Yes. Even bigger than Bosnia, Herzegovina in, 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 some, mm. in some respects. There's not, there hasn't been quite as much in the air around that. But in terms of a land war, it's, it's a, we're talking about a big, big fight. Yes. And we're talking about going into summer, which means a counteroffensive. Yes. What are we likely to see 
now going forward do you think what are some of the objectives of the of of the of the Ukrainian army and, and the Russian army now in the next few months? Well, well before we even start on that, I want to talk about the significance of what's happening there with, with this huge conventional war. Before this, before this war uh, broke out, uh, we were speaking about, in academic circles, we were talking about the death of conventional war, as we know, the end of history, right. the death of conventional war. We never saw, th- thought we'd see a conventional war again fought uh, in Europe or anywhere else in the world. Uh, it, 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 we were moving over to the sort of hybrid-type war, asymmetric uh, terrorist-type war, guerrilla warfare, uh, and we moved away from the conventional. So this is, this is ushered in. A brand new period of conventional war for we've, the first time in decades. We, we've gone back in history. We've gone back in for history. For the future. We've gone back in history for the future. So convention, and also, uh, because of n- nuclear prolif- proliferation, it, it, uh, it also augured for the end of, of, of this type of conventional war, which it hasn't actually. Mm. We, we can see it happening today, right, unfolding right in front of our eyes. So conventional war, warfare is very much alive. So, okay, so, so right, we're, I'm just going to cut you there because I do think it's an important point to make, uh, but we do need to uh, just take a short break. But I think it was a, a crucial point to make. So when we come back, we're going to continue to be speaking to Dr. David Katz uh, and, and go into uh, this, this conventional war and uh, what we are likely to see going forward in the European theater. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Schulman. 101.9 High F. M. I am Benji Shulman, and we are discussing today Ukraine and Russia uh, with Dr. David Katz. You can SMS us 34519 or telegram us 0618951019 if you want to be part of the conversation. Now, uh, we were discussing about the return of history, Doctor, just before the break, uh, around the fact that we're having a conventional war, and you were just explaining to us why that's significant, although it does have some new elements to it. Right? We're seeing the ele- uh, introduction of drone warfare, uh, the, the use of hypersonic missiles and missile defense systems. So there's something new uh, under the sun here, but at the same time, a proper good old-fashioned conventional war. No, absolutely. I don't believe that the uh, the new technology that's been introduced, such as drones, uh, etc., has affected the operational conduct of the war to any extent. In fact, very su- uh, it's surprising mm. how this war, starting off as a war of maneuver with a lot of momentum uh, all, all over the place, the Russians attacked on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a vast broad front, has now descended uh, back into something that we saw in World War I, which is basically static attritional trench warfare, which is not what the Russians intended in the first place. But this is what we're down to at this stage of the game. And I must tell you that the technology is playing very, very little role in restoring a, a war of movement back onto the fronts. It, it's interesting because, of course, you're an expert in uh, ways of war, right? You, you wrote your book on, the, on on trying to identify a South African way of war. But, but the Russians are not in my view, experts in lightning-fast uh, warfare anyway, which is what kind of what they tried to do, decapitate the regime in Ky- Kiev and then uh, and then sort of uh, cut the country in half. Uh, They're they actually large meat grinder type, let's all get as many Russians as we can onto the front and overwhelm the ev- enemy, has always kind of been the Russian way, surely. Absolutely not, actually. You don't um, think so? I must tell you, and again, there's a bit of a Jewish influence over here, that back in the 1930s, the Russians were the first to uh, codify, let's put it that way, a good word for it, codify an operational level of war. Prior Mm -hmm. to that, and we talk about the three levels of war, the tactical level, the operational, and the strategic. 
Prior to that, the operational level of war was not identified until the Russians got stuck in a couple of Jewish boys, uh, intellectuals on the Russian side, identified and codified what they called deep battle. And they constructed this, this, this whole philosophy, military philosophy called deep battle. So they were very forward thinkers, in fact, on, on the way to conduct warfare. And uh, they constructed something called deep battle, which they used to great effect in 1943 um, around Kursk, which was a deep defense where they comprehensively beat the German army. And in 1944 in Bagration, they used deep battle to great effect and inflicted one of the greatest defeats on the German army uh, in its history uh, with 300,000 prisoners and lots of, uh, lots of ground uh, captured. So the Russians come from, from, a, from a massive school of thought about deep battle, war of movement, war of momentum. Whether they were able to execute it properly at all times, they certainly got a hell of a lot better than they were uh, at the end of the war and in the beginning is up for debate. But uh, it's certainly quite advanced. And, and in fact, the American military uh, has mimicked to a large extent uh, these deep battle concepts and try to learn about the operational side of war and everything like that from the Russians. So the Russians were world leaders in that. So one would have expected a hell of a lot more from them on the initial opening phase in Kiev when they attacked Kiev. Uh, but in fact, they did it with... Um, there were a whole lot of infrastructural problems with what they did, but they also did with far too few tubes. They uh, deployed about thirty to 40,000 troops in, in a massive endeavor that, that, that must probably required hundreds of thousands. And, uh, right. Yeah. I'm happy to be corrected then on, uh, on the nature of, of Russian warfare. So if, if, we're sa- if we're saying that they do have the knowledge and they sort of know how to do this stuff but they haven't, what, what, what do you think is going on that we're, that we're not seeing in terms of how the Russians are operating? Well, it's a, it's, it's, it's most probably a point of a bad plan, badly executed. Uh, certainly the desire to have a, to, to follow a great military, advanced military doctrine and to put it down on the ground is, are, are two different things. I mean, we learn that every day in battle. And, uh, certainly they're, 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 they're a rusty machine. They underestimated the enemy, uh, totally. And also they deployed a type of hybrid warfare where they thought that they had politically undermined the Kiev regime. And they had a lot of support within uh, within the Ukrainians, and that if they just kicked the door a little bit, then the whole edifice would have fallen down, uh, which didn't happen. So they actually galvanised the Ukrainian population instead of instead of splitting it down the middle, which which what they hoped for. So they totally underestimated uh, the effect of this invasion on the political scene, on the military. It actually galvanised Ukrainian society behind their their army. Uh, more than anything else, actually, because it was a pretty divided society uh, before the Russians arrived. To begin with, uh, we have Abraham who's come in with a, a few uh, viewpoints. Uh, so thank you, Abraham. I appreciate that. He's saying Russia never wanted regime, uh, regime change in Kiev. Can you quote a source for that? Uh, you can't uh, win a war against a country with the most atomic weapons. Why does nobody in the West understand this fact? Uh, there's something else here you've written, everyone, it's not coming through. But thank you for that. Uh, and I think it does go to, and I think it's an important question about the nature of what Russia wants here. Because I, I read an interesting article from uh, uh, Tim Cohn in the Daily Maverick where he's like, well, what, what is Russia's, what, what is the reason that Russia went went after this and he to be perfectly honest he didn't come up with something very convincing he he read through this whole thing and he said well it was like a psychological thing that russians sort of always want to keep fighting and it's part of as part of their psyche and it, that feels a little bit a psychological to me my, my sense about putin is that he's not crazy uh and that he is actually a very 
deeply rational actor, even if he sort of comes at it from his own worldview. And yet the Russians have not provided a very good explanation as to why they've gone in there. When you, I, I read an official Russian statement yesterday. Uh, they came and they briefed an audience here in South Africa, and it's all about discussions about neo-Nazis in Ukraine and uh, and 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 uh, there's the discussion of NATO, which I want to get onto as well. But it, it's it's sort of not clear to me what really the Russian the the Russian calculus was for for starting this war. And and I'm, this is not about condoning it or not condoning it. I'm kind of interested in if we don't understand why the Russians are in this fight, then how do we eventually create a way for it to stop? Uh, and so that's why I'm kind of interested in what you think the 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 viewpoint is around here around uh why the russians wanted to go in in the first place and what they were trying to achieve well i think there's two different there's two different aspects to this the the, the one aspect is the russian the deep russian yearning for the territory that the that the ussr and 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 the position that it that it that it enjoyed of the old USSR, um, the Russians, the Russians feel that they want to regain that status, that they're a major power in the world, which they, they, they just are not, certainly from an economic point of view. The only thing that, that gives them any sort of type of significance in the world today is their massive oil holdings and their nuclear arsenal. But besides that, they are a shadow of what they used to be economically under the, uh, under the Soviet uh, John, regime. John McCain used to call them uh, a petrol station parading as a country. Yes, something like that. Something like that. So they yearn for that. And I mean, that goes, that, that's deeply rooted. You, you, you only need to visit Moscow to, to, to understand that yearning and the nostalgia that they feel back mm-hmm. for the USSR and the power that it used to enjoy. That's the first, that, that's the first reason why they may be uh, interested in regaining some of the territory that the USSR used to hold. Uh, the second thing is whether you agree or don't agree that NATO poses an existential threat to, 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 to Russia. I, I don't think we're going to get anywhere debating that today. But, I mean, uh, maybe the question is, is, do the Russians believe it? It's not so important whether we believe it or not. Do the Russians believe that NATO actually poses an existential threat? And I would say to you, yes, to a large extent, there are sectors of the Russian population that, that honestly, honestly believe it. They've come out of the Second World War um, having lost 20 million uh, soldiers fighting that war at the end of the day. They feel that they've been badly uh, treated. Uh, there was a, there was a, a um, key moment. I think with the fall of the Berlin uh, Wall, where where the Russians could have been embraced and brought more over to to, to the West, and, uh, and and maybe even brought in as a member of NATO, the possibility existed at that stage, uh, and it didn't turn out that way for various reasons uh, that I don't think we're going to be able to cover today. But it didn't turn out that way, and NATO turned back into a group that opposed Russia, Russia expansionism, and it gained more and more wen- uh, members, and. I feel the Russians felt that this was a, a threat, a real threat to their system. So they, uh, and they also they feel that the Americans and the West were behind the regime change in Kiev, mm. uh, the first time around. I think they felt uh, that. So they felt reasonably threatened about it. And, uh, this is the reason why they're fighting today is was probably to put a halt to NATO expansionism, whereas what they see as NATO expansionism. Um, to a certain expan- extent, I, 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 I see uh, some of their concerns about the uh, Nazi roots in the Ukraine. I wouldn't overplay that, but uh, Ukraine has a history. Uh, and, the, and the history is alive through the Azov Battalion that wears the SS ruins of uh, Oscar Derlewanger. I mean, uh, he was one of the most despotic, uh, terrible SS officers who was involved in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the destruction of Warsaw. 
the Warsaw Ghetto using Ukrainian volunteers to do it. So there's, there seems to be, there seems to be some justification that the Ukrainians have turned a blind eye to using, uh, to using Nazi and fascist uh, forces, uh, in, in, in their military. So there's all those things combined, I would say. So Abraham has come in again <laughs> and says he believes that it's uh, because of what you were talking about, uh, the overthrow of the elected uh, Ukrainian government in 2014 during that uh, color revolution. Yes. Uh, and uh, he, he alleges by the, by the, by the USA and the, the civilians that were then killed in the Donbass by uh, Ukrainian shelling. Uh, so, so that, 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 Definitely seems to be a proximate element here. What do you make of of the view that coming back to that revolution is that that's really the the real threat to Russia? Is that Ukraine represents a um, a free uh, democratic European state? It has many very many issues um, that it's that it's got, uh, but but it is essentially still a democratic country, and it's Russian speaking. And so those messages about what it means to live in an open society, whatever, then being transmitted in Russian to the country across the border. And that if the Russians look across, they may say, hmm, we want that as well. And that represents even more of a threat to Putin than NATO or anything else. No, certainly there's an, there, there is an element of that. Although I would have said to you before this war broke out, um, it was surprising how little store the Russian people held for democracy. It's mm. not what they, that, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm just talking off the cuff here. I don't have any uh, sources or, or expert sources on this. But, uh, did the Russians hold much store by democracy? I would say no. They were more, they were more interested in regaining their, their previous prestigious status that they, they held during the world. Uh, as a world power and having any sort of type of democracy. In fact, they were quite happy with Putin at a, at a certain stage. Whether that still exists today, I don't know. So, so let, let's talk about the Ukrainian side now, right? We, we're talking about a, a, a counteroffensive. We, 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 we want to see what's going to happen there. What do you think the Ukrainian objectives are over the, the summer months, militarily speaking? Well, it's, it's very, very interesting because the Ukrainians have been very, very successful in the propaganda war and actually galvanizing uh, the West behind them, mm-hmm. uh, doing the right things. And also their, their army has, has, uh, has uh, produced some remarkable victories out of anybody's expectation, actually, because, I mean, they were minnows against giants uh, to, to, to start it with. But today, when we have a look at it, they've mobilized more troops than the Russians have got, so they actually outnumber the Russians. They most probably are better equipped than the Russians, and they pose a, a great military threat. What are their objectives? I mean, it's been stated by Zelensky. They want all the lands taken into to, uh, 2014 restored back to them, and they would like to be part of NATO and the economic union. That's uh, that's the ultimate result. He is hell-bent on not giving an inch over that. He once those lands back, there may be uh, a behind the scenes. The Russians may be going for now a, a, some type of a settlement where, the, the, where they retain uh, Crimea and the Donbass and the areas uh, before the invasion. Uh, and, and there are a couple of European nations now that, that, that are seeing that there needs to be some type of a political settlement, which Zelensky, by the way, is fighting tooth and nail against. He doesn't want there to be any political settlement mm-hmm. until such time as he, as he has restored uh, those territorial uh, uh, lands that have been taken by the Russians. So, certainly from a military perspective, is a place like the Crimea, which sort of is got this narrow land bridge off of, 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 of Ukraine. I mean, is, is that a, a viable target? It's one thing to push the, 
the the Russians back out of Kiev if it's a capital and your sort of your own home territory, so to speak. But essentially, it, you'd have to invade an island in order to kick them out of Crimea. Well, the Germans had great difficulty when they were coming the same exactly the same way back in uh, back in the, in the early 1940s. Uh, and they only took Crimea in the second year of, of, of the campaign for the exact same reasons that you're talking about, because it's, it's a small area, uh, it's, it's, it's constricted and, uh, it poses a whole lot of military, uh, issues. Is an outright Ukrainian victory possible uh, in, in, in this, in this current climate? I would say not for political and military reasons. Let's have a look at some of the military reasons. I believe it's turned into a static war at this stage. The defense is always stronger than the offense. Mm-hmm. If the Ukrainians had to now go over, over to a full, full strategic, not what they're doing now, some tactical offensive, but I'm talking about a full strategic offensive to liberate all the areas that the Russians have been taken, I think they may stumble into the same, the same problems that the Russians have experienced uh, going forward. So I see it as a stalemate, a military stalemate, with obviously uh, the Ukrainians being able to, 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 to land grab some of the territory back through through their tactical maneuvers. But I don't see them being able to remove the Russians uh, uh, fully over the next couple of months. Sir. And a, a big part about this war has also been the issue of air superiority. The Russians were never able to really gain no. even air supremacy, never mind superiority, yes. in, 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 in the battle. Surprising. Yeah, but neither have the, the, the Ukrainians either. Yes, right? yes. So, so there's a lot of discussion in the West about you know, do we introduce F-16s and that sort of like fighter jets into – would that make a big difference? Yes, I think it would. I, th- I think air supremacy would make a big difference down on the ground. It always has. I mean, the Israeli army just fights on air supremacy. It's one of it's 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 it's, it's part of the mix that they that they hold great store in, and uh, certainly any modern day military that, that 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 has to conduct itself without air superiority is 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 going to have a hard time of it. So it would change things quite significantly. And uh, look, I, I believe the West. There are elements in the West that would like to see a settlement right now, mm-hmm. uh, where some concessions must probably are made to the Russians. There is that. I think the Russians are playing to that, uh, and, and Zelensky is very, very scared of that at the moment, that uh, he may be forced because the, because the West could turn around and force him into a settlement. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, yeah, these all these different things playing off. So I don't know how uh, quick they are now to arm him with his planes to gain air superiority, and he poses a real threat to the Russians. They may, that may be just politically untenable. Yeah, there is a sense in which the West is prepared to fight this war down to the last Ukrainian. Uh, let's just take as a, as a sort of last comment, uh, Dr. Katz, the, the issue of South Africa. Right? We've made a matzah pudding uh, of this whole thing. Uh, we've damaged ourselves, even though we really don't have all that much direct interest in it. Where do you think South Africa goes from here, yeah, given that we've managed to annoy the Americans uh, and, 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 and the Ukrainians and, and a, sort of a bunch of other people in the way that we've handled this. Well, I think don't underestimate the, the feelings that the, uh, the government of the day, the ANC has for, uh, the role that the USSR had in the liberation movements. Mm-hmm. I think where the South Africa government perhaps has made a mistake is that Russia is not the, U- is not the USSR. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's just a component of it. And, uh, and, and things have changed, things have moved on. So they have a great nostalgia for the old Soviet Union and how they helped them through the liberation years, which they did with absolutely no doubt, whatever. And, but this nostalgia and, uh, their, their, their sort of surreptitious backing for, for, for the Russians has come at a great, great, and will come at a great economic price. It's just not clever when Russia is your 15th largest trading partner, most probably, to go now and annoy the West with this type of thing. 
especially with something so opaque as 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 these ships arriving in the in the middle of the night and strange things going on to them. Absolutely, Fred. We're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Katz, thank you so much for bringing us that perspective on what is going on, on what is, uh, as you said, the, the biggest uh, land war in Europe and something which we're going to have to keep an eye on and which is going to affect us. We really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thanks so much for having me. There we go. That is uh, Dr. David Katz. He is a um, historian and uh, interested in the military, and uh, you can read his book on Jan Smuts uh, as well as Africa, uh, uh, Rommel's War in Africa. That's right. Uh, there we go. Yeah, so if you want to learn about some of these uh, concepts, which he does very well, you can have a look at those uh, and uh, and learn about uh, warfare. You are listening to 101.9 High FM, and I am Benji Shulman.